Last week, on November 11th, Canadians across the country once again commemorated Remembrance Day in honour of the war dead. But here today on Church Matters, we want to share a non-violent peace-building success story from Mindanao, Philippines. Hi, my name is Dan Dick, and welcome to Church Matters. Dan and Joji Pantoa have represented Mennonite Church Canada peace-building efforts in Mindanao since 2006, where a land conflict has been going on for decades. Christians, Muslims, and indigenous tribal people, and the military have been entangled in a struggle without apparent resolve. But recently, a new framework for peace in the region has been brokered. At the heart of this new agreement are the values and principles of the peace teachings of the Gospels. Dan and Joji have been at the center of much of this work, but are quick to say that the foundation for these new peaceful developments has been laid by prior Mennonite peace ministry in the region. That very condensed background sets the stage for our conversation today. I know that Dan and Joji focus on the values depicted by the fruits of the Spirit passage from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Dan, welcome to Church Matters. Thank you for having me. Dan, you must be overjoyed at this new promise of peace in your homeland, even though much work yet needs to be done. You've been working in the middle of this conflict for six years now. What's the most important thing you've learned about building a consensus for nonviolent peace? Dan, it's relationship. Relationship is the key to peace building. And uh, this relationship has to be based on transparency. They have to learn who we are, uh, what we believe, and we have to start with that. It's first our being. Our being determines uh, what we do or our doing. And what we do, our doing, determines what we want to have, and that is peace and reconciliation. You said we have to start with who we are and what we believe. What about what the others believe? Oh, yes. That's where they are coming from. That is also their being. And uh, we have to listen so sensitively and actively. Uh, Active listening is very important in this relationship building. Is it your goal to convert people of other faiths to Christianity? No. I think it is very important that they would know God and who God is in terms of God's relationship with humanity. And then it will continue to be a dialogue. From the perspective of the Muslims, it is through the five pillars of Islam. From our perspective, the Christian uh, faith It is through Jesus Christ. And through this dialogue, they will understand and they would really uh, evaluate for themselves what it means to be at peace with God through Christ. If it's not your goal to convert, well, how do you rationalize that with the Great Commission in the New Testament? that That phrase, convert to Christianity, is so loaded. And from the context of the Philippine history, it's so loaded with colonialism and imperialism. Let me just tell you, uh, 
how the Muslims and the indigenous Filipinos or people in the Philippines are perceived. When the Spanish Armada came, you know, the big, sh the big wooden ships, the first guys to get off the ship were the soldados, the, the soldiers. And then they fight with the natives and then they set up the fort, the military fort. Then the next guys to get off were the administrators, the colonial administrators. Then when they were established, who guess who? The third group of people who got off from the ships, the friars, the missionaries, the priests. When the American came, the same thing. These uh, steel boats, giant boats, giant ships made of steel. First, the Marines. Second, the administrators, the colonial administrators. Then the third, the missionaries, the pastors, the evangelists. And so from the perspective of the natives, conversion to Christianity is that this Christ is an imperialist Christ who cannot even get to the people without the protection of the military and of their colonial powers. Here's what is the reason why we're there. We want to show them, here is a follower of Jesus Christ. Here we are. We follow Jesus. We present the cross. The cross means Jesus Christ will die for everyone but would not kill for anyone. Jesus Christ invited us to follow him. And we are here to give our lives to you. You can kill us, but we will never kill you. That is the non-violent, embracing representation of who Christ is in the name of God, who is gracious, who is merciful. Then we start the conversation. What about the uh, military and the indigenous people? What uh, you talked about, the five pillars of Islam, how do those perspectives, those moral perspectives fit into this equation? Well, they hear it, but it doesn't, uh, for example, the indigenous people you mentioned, they're more interested about discussing their natural spirituality, their indigenous spirituality, who the creator is, how is the creator working and acting through the divine creation and how we as human beings interact with the creator and the whole of creation. That is uh, their cosmology or their perspective or worldview towards peace. And what about the military? Have you had any success? Uh, I mean, the military is founded on the principle of, of uh, force and violence ultimately solving conflict. Yes. Uh, the military should be seen as a group of human beings. If we will just look at them as an institution especially we Mennonites, tend to be so militant against the military. Well, I want to see uh, beyond the institution. These are human beings. They are not the enemies. And these human beings are created in God's image as much as the Muslims and the indigenous people and the Christians are created in the image of God. We start from there. And then we talk about their humanity. We listen to their humanity. What are their dreams about their family, their marriage, uh, dreams for their children? We start with that. 
and that makes them humanized. We humanize them, not demonize them. Dan, what kind of concrete changes characterize people's behavior when they try a nonviolent peace building? It must be daunting and, and risky when all you know is violent force. So what have you seen in terms of transformation? I think they have seen a higher purpose uh, for life than fighting for their position. We differentiate what is position and what is their dreams, their aspirations, their fears, their, their perspective of life. Um, I think st political statements, those positions can be guarded and can be fought with guns and bullets. And then we listen. Uh, for example, if they say, uh, down with the Republic of the Philippines, right? This is uh, the common uh, Muslim people. But then we ask, what exactly does that mean? Oh, we want to be free. We want to have better schools. We want to have our livelihood be normalized, like we eat three times a day. We, we send uh, our kids to the nursery, all those basic life. And so we talk to the other side, to the Republic of the Philippines. This is what they need. This is what they are asking for. And then, uh, both to the Philippine military and to the uh, Muslim um, uh, fighters, we say, you know, every time you shoot that M16, each bullet cost a dollar or 42 pesos. And that can buy one kilo of rice that could feed your family of five for a day. That wakes them up. You've worked at building relationships with various people groups. Yes. How is it that you then bring them together into a group face-to-face -face, and go about building trusting relationships and long-lasting relationships when they're all on different sides of a conflict? The first thing that we do is we go to the Muslim area. We're Christians. By default, we represent the Republic of the Philippines because from their perspectives, that's the Christian nation. They call themselves the Bangsa Moro or the nation of the Moors. So we go there and we say, here we are, we represent Christ. But yes, honestly, we are citizens of the Republic of the Philippines. Now, can we talk, and this time we would like to represent more who Christ is, who Jesus is. It's not uh, that you do not like Christ or Jesus or Isa. I think what you did not like was when we use his name to get your lands to colonize, to conquer. But here we are. We want to have a heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind, person-to-person dialogue. And then, in my case, that took a process of six months before they trusted me. And then I listened to them. I took notes. I, I wrote journals of what they were saying. And then I showed them my notes, exactly. 
am I articulating what you're fighting for? And they said, yes. Okay, can I show this to my brothers and sisters in the church in Manila, the center of the Republic of the Philippines, and to those uh, uh, leaders there, yeah, whoever wants to, to hear? And is this exactly what you're saying? And then they look at my journals, my documents, and yes, that's what we want to say. And then when I'm in front of the Christians, they say, how did you get this? Did you, did you go there? Did you live there? And I say, yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, this is our first time to hear this, uh, not as a propaganda, but a Christian articulating a Muslim perspective. That is really revolutionary, according to them. So how do they interact when you collect them in one room? Okay. Is there, what do you do to start building that trust? It's one thing to see what someone else has said on a written page. It's another thing in a face-to-face -face situation when people are gathered in a room to confront how, what they perceive as the oppressor for the first time face-to-face. -face. We start with prayer. We allow an imam to pray in the Muslim prayer. And then we allow a Christian pastor or priest to pray the Christian prayer. And when there are uh, indigenous people, we allow them to pray to the Creator the indigenous way. When the divine is invoked and all of their perspectives are respected, they tend to be human, to humanize each other and not to demonize each other. Then we talk of our commonality, what's common to us. Our, the, our commonality is that we want to worship the Creator. All of us want to worship the Creator. We want to be the best human being before our Creator. And then we talk about what the Creator tells us or teaches us about treating other human beings. That's, we can talk for a whole week about all those things very positively. Then we talk about the hard stuff. Why did you take my land? Why did you kill my grandfather? Why did you kill my uncle? What are you going to do now? You know, those transitional justice and restorative justice issues and justice for the land, justice for the environment after we have talked about our commonalities. Dan, you work with Catholics. With yes. the evangelical churches, with Muslims. What do they contribute to peace building that Mennonites do not? I think that confession, that transparency, that humility is so needed. And so... I thought that's the only thing that we're, that we're missing. When, when a people is oppressed and have admitted and have been transparent that at one time in their journey, in history, in their own history, they benefited and they participated in the oppression. That 
that is peace building. That confession of our sin is peace building, individually or corporately. It's not so different in Canada here where Canada's indigenous people have been oppressed. Mm -hmm. That situation is multiplied in many places around the world, many countries that have been colonized. Yes. Why is confession so hard? If confession is such a major step in reaching the resolution of a conflict, and yet confession is so hard for the oppressor to acknowledge, why is that? I think they're afraid of the consequences of confession. We know that there are oppressing parties who would not officially admit or apologize to the parties they have confessed because there's so much legal, financial consequences and the consequences can be enormous. I think that's the reason. But for real healing to happen, I like it when the government of Australia several years ago publicly and officially apologized to the aboriginals of Australia. Do Mennonites confess openly that we have indeed participated and benefited from oppression? As soon as I arrived in Winnipeg, I participated in this Mennonites and Human Rights uh, conference, and they did. And that's the first time I heard them say and articulate such confessions. I think we have to put this and add this into our conciliation materials. Here are the instances in our journey, in our history, that we were not just oppressed, we were not just persecuted at times. At this, in these specific segments of our journey, we benefited and even perpetrated the oppression and documented and say, God, forgive us. And to those people whom we have oppressed, we say, forgive us. And then restorative and transitional justice actions. Dan, in your youth, you trained as a soldier with the Philippine military. Has this experience in some way contributed to your peace-building skill set? Yes. You see, as a young man, under the martial law, under President Marcos, we, as high school students, we have to line up every weekend and do military training. We call it preparatory military training. In college, we have CMT, that's Cadet Military Training or Civilian Military Training. I took the real advanced training, uh, jungle survival skills and all those things. Those trainings developed in us certain reflexes. That's military. They want you to act by reflex. Obey first before you think or before you reason out, right? So it's instinctively. The sad thing is that those are violent instincts. In my own journey, I need to 
to ask God's power over my flesh, my body, who has memorized those instincts to be violent. And the Spirit of God is so needed every day in my life to calm down those muscles, those reactions, those nerves that are violent, trained to be violent. And so when I look at a military guy, when I look at a rebel, when I look at a guerrilla soldier, I look at that and I pray for them and I love them and I want to embrace them. We've talked, Dan, now about the roles of various ethnic groups and faith traditions in the Mindanao conflict and the role of the military. I want to bring in one very important strata of society that impacts peace in many regions of the world, and that is the corporate sector. Tell me about John Perrine, the CEO of Unifruity, and how this large fruit and food-growing corporation has been brought into the peace-building process in Mindanao. We are buying and selling coffee, and we bought coffee from John Perrine's wife, Renee. This is about Coffee for Peace, the fair trade business that is part of our peace-building ministry. John Pirine thought, who is this Coffee for Peace and Peace Builders? Uh, let's meet them. And uh, he's supposed to just meet with us for 30 minutes. It went on for four hours because we talked about peace. We talked about transformation. It so happened that he met the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, submitted himself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in his life a few years uh, back. During our conversation, we talk about how a corporate leader could help in the transformation of a whole nation by doing peace building and by participating in the process of reconciliation. So we became partners. And uh, that's the time when I said, you know what, let's formalize this uh, relationship. And so we have now a memorandum of understanding on how his company can participate in the peace-building process in the Philippines. And how big is Unifruity? Unifruity is big. It's made up of 20 companies under one Unifruity Group Philippines, which is the holding corporation. Uh, they own uh, banana and uh, uh, pineapple and other operations. Uh, they are the third largest exporting uh, agribusiness uh, in the Philippines. Uh, the first is Del Monte, the second is Dole Pineapple, and third is Unifruity. And you're going to be training their management team in peace-building skills? We are already training their uh, senior management team from the presidents, the vice presidents, the senior executives, manage, middle management. We're done with that. That is training them in the peace and reconciliation principles as the core 
of their management management system. The, I understand there also was a milestone meeting that Unifruity had with its farmers and suppliers. Tell me about that. Yes, they invited us to um, mediate between first their employees, unionized employees. Most of the company would look at the union from an adversarial perspective. After perceiving, after learning the peace and reconciliation principles, this is the exact word of the corporation. The union is part of one family. And so we talked as one family. And we had the privilege of mediating the senior management and the union leaders and the board in a peace and reconciling talks. Not just peace and reconciling uh, from the perspective of the corporation. It's really based on justice from the perspective of the union members and the union uh, leaders. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is that there were some conflict before between the corporation and some tribal First Nations uh, leaders. And we should just say here, who owns the land that Unifruity uh, derives its harvest from? Technically, they are owned by private individuals with titles with, from the government. That is from the regalian doctrine of land ownership, meaning the colonial doctrine. And the Republic of the Philippines inherited that system of land ownership and titleship. But then the tribal, the indigenous peoples in Mindanao still insist that we own this land and this land and uh, they are insisting on their native titles. Now, here you go. Two worldviews on land ownership. And you know what? John Perrine and the Grand Chief of all these tribes are now talking face-to-face in peace and reconciliation with justice, transitional justice, restorative justice, issues on how this land can be shared. So as CEO, what are Mr. Parine's hope for this new insight into peace and reconciliation and how it will impact his corporation? When we compared our vision and mission, we noticed that we resonate each other's dreams and aspiration as an act of worship before God and as an act of service to the people and to the land. For example, we both believe that we are God's steward. His being a CEO of this big corporation is seen by him, and it's in their vision and mission statement of the corporation. We are stewards of God. Stewardship is number one. Number two, the sense of justice, the fairness. We are going to be one family under God. And uh, it is uh, laid out in terms of justice and fairness 
in our dealing with each other, dealing with the farmers, dealing with the landowners, dealing with the investors, dealing with the employees, and all these things will be done in relational approach based on peace and reconciliation. That's a fantastic story, Dan. It's time to close our conversation here for this morning. Thank you so much for coming and taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thank you for the privilege of sharing what God has been doing in the Philippines. Thanks to all our listeners wherever you are. Church Matters is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Thanks so much for your support. Please consider making a gift to Mennonite Church Canada so that we can celebrate more peace-building success stories like the one you've heard today. To give, call 1-866-888-6785 or visit MennoniteChurch.ca. My name is Dan Dick and you've been listening to Church Matters. Know that you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way.